Are you looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Brad Baker. And I'm Tom Broback. And, and this, this is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. My name is Tom Broback, and my guest today is John Bile. John is the head track and field coach at East Chapel Hill High School in North Carolina. John additionally is a PE teacher and has a wide variety of experiences in sports performance during the course of his life. Follow John on Twitter at jbile today. Let's continue to grow the mind and change the system. growing up what got you interested in either either track or sports performance or sports like where did that interest originate from well i was listening ironically i was listening to your presentation on acl which was very good by the way and oh thank you i was very much we seem very similar i i was a, a pretty good high school athlete baseball was my sport but um i got the opportunity to play a little in college and a lot of it was because because of my speed and defense, it, it sure wasn't hitting. Um, but you know, I, I loved a lot of other sports. I mean, we, we played seasonal football, basketball, everything. And then the more I evolved or aged or whatever, it, it really got excited about the training aspect of things. And, and that's really where it was. Now, as far as track and field, I, I never ran track and field. So, but I was always a fan. We Back in the early to mid 70s, there was a uh, there was a push here from the coach at North Carolina Central University in Durham and Duke University, and they held a couple of really big track meets. And it was USA versus the world. And Kip Kano came over and all these just huge distance runners, sprinters. And I remember my dad ta- uh, taking me to those. Uh, another big deal was Tony Waldrop in the in the mid 70s was um, he was going to try to break four minutes in the mile. I think it was 75 or 76. And he pulled me out of school to go up to a, a dual meet at North Carolina to watch this guy try to break four minutes in the mile. So, you know, track and field was always a love of mine. And I, I love the speed aspect of things. But uh, where I went to high school, they are still just incredibly strong at distance. And there was no way I was going to be a distance runner. I did not have the, the mental capacity for that. I agree with you on that. I, I growing up, it was like shorter is always better. Yeah. I had a brief period of time where I did train for a marathon and I ran that. But outside of that, I've never been able to sustain that that uh, endurance or, or have the mental fortitude to want to go out and, and do miles and miles and miles. Um, and that's one kind of like a huge reason that I love the TFC community is that it embraces speed. It, it embraces sprinting, whether you are you know, an active athlete or you're a former athlete and you just want to stay healthy and active. Have you uh, applied any of those principles to your daily, you know, training or your, your overall health, you know, right now? Yes. Uh, And I I have to admit, even before the, uh, the holler core fist, which I could go on and on about those two guys and the influence of the impact they've had on me. uh, Franz Bosch, I, I had an opportunity to see his uh, two-day presentation or workshop here. It came to Chapel Hill. And so it was right in my backyard, which doesn't happen very often. And, and that had a, an amazing effect. And so it really shifted me 
not, not necessarily away from maximum strength training, but, but towards reflexive. And that really captivated me. And I know that um, I've started incorporating a lot of that within myself and, and I just feel a lot better. That's kind of the big thing that I've seen in the difference in my, my personal training is I just feel better when I emphasize, uh, you know, speed, max velocity, whether it is sprinting or things in the weight room and not always going for how much volume can I get in today right. all the time? How, you know, can I beat myself down? How sore can I get? Like those used to be indicators of good workouts for me, but now I just feel better. And if I feel better, you know, the 23 hours outside of the weight room or outside of the track, I think that's just as, as important, uh, for, for where I'm at and what I'm trying to get out of my training. And it seems that a lot of coaches in this community find that both from themselves and for the athletes that they work with. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I've had, I was born slightly bow-legged in my left leg and it led to some overuse and, and me being, a. <laughs> <laughs> used to be a daredevil with uh, dirt bike racing and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I had my knee replaced about six years ago. So the, the sprinting is, is out of the question, but I do a lot of work on Hills my, just with myself and, and, and I bought a kick bike. And so that kick bike is, is really low impact and it allows me to go fast. And, and I'm telling you, when you get done going fast, it just feels so much better to me than than I ever did having a max squat, max bench session and walking away from there. It just, it, whatever you want to call it, neurally, electrically, whatever, you just feel so much more wired for sound and just ready to roll. Absolutely. And you, you feel like you've accomplished something. And I think the, the risk reward ratio is much more in your favor in terms of the potential of, of, of injury and soreness and, and you know, when, when you do heavy back squats, most people complain of their back being sore for three or four days or for a week. And it's like, is that what we're really trying to get after? Like, is that really right. worth the sacrifice we're trying to get after? Right. And maybe for some people it is, and maybe some people that's necessary, but I think we have found a lot of different ways to, to chase after athletic potential and athletic performance with, with minimizing those risks. And I think that's really important when we are, uh, you know, sports performance coaches, track coaches, uh, teachers, physical therapists, I think emphasizing that risk reward ratio is so important in educating people proper way to train and take care of yourself, whether you are the coach or the athlete in the scenario. Yeah. And I totally agree. And, and nothing bothers me more than getting on Twitter and just seeing these these back and forth debates about, you know, heavy squats, no squatting. It's, it, it's so dependent on you, your athletes, yeah. your setup. Um, and and it's, so there's really, to me, there's just no right or wrong answer. It just is what fits at that particular time for that particular athlete and how they, how they adapt to it. Or, or uh, so I, that, that just always bothers me when you just see those conversations on Twitter. Cause it's, you know, to me, it's like sports talk radio. And it's, um, you know, I think when they when they don't have anything else to talk about, the go to is, OK, who's the best player ever, LeBron, Kobe or MJ? And, you know, everybody, everybody has their opinion. And you're like, we're going to go in circles. There's no right answer. That, and that's the thing, and especially in sports performance. There, there usually isn't a right answer. There's usually this is a better way. This is a different way. 
this is something we haven't tried before. There's just like kind of this revolving door and you just got to figure out what works, like you said, best for you and your athletes. And it's not a competition to someone else because they have different goals, different objectives, different athletes, you know, different parameters, different facilities. And you just gotta, I think the best coaches learn to take away the information from those conversations and apply it to themselves or, or figure out how they can apply it instead of engaging in, in an endless debate where there, where there clearly is uh, a no winner or I, uh, right way. Per se. Yeah, I just don't, I just don't, I don't give myself the time to do that. It's just, it's just not time well spent in my opinion. That, that's the other thing. The, uh, and, and I've noticed this too, the, the more time I have, the more I, I get engaged in, in those kind of discussions. And it's like, is this the best use of my time? And when I'm really busy, I don't have time to engage in silly conversations or endless right. debates. And you realize like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing things that are productive and maybe this doesn't really fit in that way. <laughs> um, but I think, I think I'm, I'm always, I'm a little susceptible to get to engage in some of that, but I really try not to because it's not making me better. It's not the best use of my time. It's much better to, you know, message someone, get someone on a podcast, go listen to a conference and, and develop that way and, and grow that way instead of trying to show your intellectual superiority in, in a debate that, that doesn't lead to it exactly. too much or anything. Um, so you grew up playing baseball, uh, was track, was it, was it big in your, in your high school or is it big with, with kids your age growing up or was it something that was kind of secondary and not everyone really did? The, uh, cross country, cross country was mm. big track. And, and then the, the distance program within track and field was big. Um, but like I mentioned, I was, I love playing baseball, but I would have jumped at the opportunity in high school to, to do both, but it just, um, the, the sprinting aspect was, it was more of an afterthought when it came to the track and field program. So, but, you know, ironically, I, I coach now here in Chapel Hill and, um, I'm at East Chapel Hill high school, which is one of the, it was, it's been around for about 25 years now. And we, we had a very strong cross country program and distance program as well. And so when I started there about 12 years ago, my son was a rising ninth grader and they had not had a sprint coach. They had, a, they had always had somebody who would come in two, maybe three days a week. So I was hired to come on there and we have actually built up the sprint program. And you're not going to believe there are people who are familiar with the program would not believe it, that we actually have more sprinters and jumpers now than we do distance runners. Which, oh, wow. uh, which, which is, which is pretty amazing. How did you help build that? How did you create that culture, that community, that emphasis of, of speed is important and getting kids to want to come out? Well, I, I think it's, it's more just modeling what you want in the program. And, mm. and I, I consider myself um, knowledgeable. I can't say that knowledgeable now. I can't say that when I took over that I was the most knowledgeable sprint coach. Uh, but I have I have grown and I study all the time, all the time, all the time. And I think with the success that we had, that success breeds success in a sense. And 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 when I say success, I'm not necessarily meaning that we were many, winning multiple state championships. We had we had some very high level athletes, but I think that when you have a coach that's consistent, has high expectations, and the kids have fun practicing, that that attracts a lot of kids out. How do you define success in your program? I talked to a lot of different coaches 
And they always mention, you know, it's not about wins and losses. It's not about titles and that. But there still has to be, a, a, you know, you said high expectations. There still has to be a bar set, a standard set. How do you go about that in your in your program? Well, I like to win. <laughs> we, we all do. Yeah, I mean, I, that, there's, that's a very satisfying feeling. Right. But um, helping helping kids get better. You know, so each each kid has the potential for a different success story. And I am just as proud. I had a young lady that that came in as a nine seven long jumper in in ninth grade, and she was a tremendous kid, tremendous kid. I mean, so such high character. And then by the end, she popped a you know a fourteen seven this past uh, two years oh, ago. Wow. We lost last season, and just to see the look on her face is that close to qualifying for regionals? No, but just the impact that that had her, on her. And knowing that consistent hard work is going to pay off, that says it all. And so it really is dependent on the kid. And we talk about that a lot that, you know, you've been you've been blessed with this ability. So you owe it to yourself to maximize it. And so to me, you know, when I define success, it's that you buy into the program, you're there every day and you're training smart every day. And if you're going to do that, the results will take care of themselves. I think that's really important for coaches to, to hear because too much is, is focused on like where we're going and not enough is like how we're going to get there. And if you take care of how we're going to get there, you're going to end up where you want to go. You might even end up past it, but I think too often uh, in, in society today, we get focused on the, you know, the state championship or the next paycheck or right. the, the, the shiny new object down the road. And we're not where we're, our feet are. And it leads to a lot of issues with, with anxiety and depression and, and angst and, and, and feeling of not being good enough. And I think that's a, a big challenge for, for, for coaches of any level of, of any success too, that to be where you are right now and to be working on going forward and not be caught up in the, in the, what, what the future always holds. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question. I mean, our, our best year at East Chapel Hill high, we, uh, we ended up winning conference and we were, excuse me, we're a very small 4A school. We, we have four, excuse me, classifications. And we actually won our regional and finished fourth in the state. To me, that was like a state championship. That was absolutely huge to be able to compete with the Charlotte and Greensboro and Raleigh schools, which are, you know, in some cases, two and three times the, um, the population that we have. Absolutely. So going forward, how do you, this is what I always struggle with when you reach a new height, you have a, a conference championship or a section championship. How do you go forward? And if every year, if you don't reach that level, how do you not feel disappointed as, as a coach or a program? Because that's very easy for that to settle in when new standards are, are set that you, you, you lose the, the ability to see the reward of a season, even though it didn't end the way you wanted to. Well, you know, in high school, you, you know, quote unquote, you get what you get and, and you, you can go through cycles where you have some tremendous athletes and then you can go through some cycles where it's, you know, you read district or, or whatever happens and you're not at that same level. So I, I rarely, if ever dwell on the past or talk about the past with the kids, I will mention sure. that things like, um, um, I'm actually, our season has not started yet. We, we've been pushed back to April 12th is going to be our start. So I've actually been 
working in a private school for the last few weeks. And in talking to them, we started working on relays this week. And I, and I told them the same thing that I tell my kids is that, you know, we're not going to, when we line up four guys for the four by two, we're going to have, you know, one or two kids that might be sub 23. And then a couple of kids that are probably uh, 24 mid, which, and when you're competing against the Charlotte schools that have a lot of football players out there and tremendous athletes, and they can line up, you know, four guys who are sub 23, you know, I say, we're not going to beat them in a race, you know, a 100 or a 200 or whatever it may be. We have to find ways to be successful. And really where that is, is in the exchanges. So what I'm getting at is just talking about what has worked in the past with certain events. And so instead of thinking that, okay, we finished first place or one conference here, I don't put that pressure on the kids year to year. Sure. But what I talk about is this is what has made us successful in the past and not necessarily winning conference, but what has helped us to develop as a relay team or as a jumper or whatever it may be. This is the process that we went through. This is the mindset that we have to have that or that we did have to be successful. But I'm never going to compare, you know, against the 2014 four by two or whatever it may be, because that's not fair. These are four totally different kids that come from a totally different background. Uh, a lot of times what I get is kids that um, are learning track and field or, or running track and field for the very first time. Absolutely. We see that a lot in uh, in college sports where they'll compare. They'll say like the example that comes to my head is is Notre Dame football and how they they always lose in these bowl games. And it's like, none of these players on this team were in that like 2012 bowl game. Like, they, right. There's no correlation. It's the same school. It might be the same, you know, coach or coaching staff, but it, it has virtually zero impact on these players because they weren't even there in 2012. They might not even watching Notre Dame football in 2012. Right. Um, so if, as, as a coach, if you keep saying, you know, five years ago, we had this or six years ago, we had that. Some of these kids are going to look at, it's not going to register them. It's like this, that isn't us. But if you focus on them and their journey and their progress, you know, a week ago, we did this, this week, can we do better? That probably, I would assume, get better buy-in from them in terms of progressing and trying to get better at what they're doing. Well, well, two things come to mind. Number one, most of those kids five years ago were in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. And you put it that way, it's like you know, kids are learning yeah. to tie their shoes and... So they didn't know any of these yeah. kids. And, um, you know... Uh, what was I going to say about the other thing? Oh, the other thing is just uh, there. It, it was a different time. If you're looking back to five mm -hmm. years from from now, and I look back at 2016 and what a totally different person I was then or as a coach. I mean, nothing's the same. So why should I why should I treat every athlete the same or every team the same when society changes and everything's different? So I, I, I have a period after every season where I write down what was successful, what was not successful, but you know, that that's for me, but I come in every year with a clean slate and okay, what do we have? What is right here in front of me? And what are we going to, what's going to work best for this group of kids? Cause now last year's seniors that did such a great job leading are, are not there anymore. So I have to cultivate new senior leadership. Is it going to be as effective? Is it going to be better? Is it not going to be as effective? You have to figure all those things out. What kind of things do you write down at the end of the season, both in the success and, and non-successful? Give me some examples of those. 
Well, a, a lot of what I what I focus on is the strategies that I took and and what worked, whether it be some of the talks that I had before conference or the regional meet or the state meet that, you know, maybe I should have said this, maybe I should have included this, maybe I shouldn't have. Because, um, you know, you have to read the rooms, the psychology of things or the mental aspect is so huge. And again, the same speech over and over and over year to year to year, it, it kind of loses its luster, so to speak. Um, I look at my planning more than anything. I look at, okay, when I started this, did I, did I focus too much? I mean, for instance, several years ago, I focused so much. I, I followed a, a basic track and field template, I think, of, okay, I'm going to work um, acceleration, and I'm going to come back with, you know, tempo training the next day, then I'm going to come back with another speed day, then tempo, then this, then you know, and, and truth be told, I really didn't know what I was doing. I'll be the first to admit that. And, and um, I did things because other coaches did them or they said I should do them. But I was always kind of like, why? So when I looked back and, and I want to I want to remind myself what I thought worked and more than anything, what are you willing to risk as a coach next year to change things, to change, to make something more effective? And I think that is what's been so refreshing to me about listening to Christian Corfus speak, because I, I'm not going to begin to say that I'm as smart as he is. But some of the things he says are some of the things that, that I think like he, you know, he doesn't do tempo running. And I'm not saying tempo running is an evil thing. But for the years that I did it, I didn't like what I saw out of the kids as they were tempo running. I think there's good tempo running. I think running, I think there's ineffective tempo running. And when I watch some of my kids and I'm trying to train their, you know, bouncing us off the ground or to get them to be more front side or this and that and the other. And then I watched them jog tempo runs. Now maybe I probably wasn't coaching them correctly, but I just don't think I was getting the, the, re, the response that I wanted. And then when he says things like, um, you know, I'm not going to periodize the season. I kind of go by what I see this week on what I need to change next week. And I, I, for a few years, I got hung up on, okay, here it is October. Indoor starts November 1st. I need to have the whole season plotted out on a graph or a chart from here till May 18th when the state meet. And this week needs to be red, which stands for this. This one needs to be blue. And truth be told, I was just having fun with crayons. I really didn't understand exactly <laughs> what I was doing. Right. So uh, I feel so much more comfortable as a coach now. And, and the, the TFC with, uh, with Corfus and Holler, especially, and, and, and so many of the tremendous speakers they've had, they've really reinforced my, my thought process of really understanding why you're doing something or is there something else you can do in place of this to get the response or the effect that you're looking for. And it's, it's just really enlightened my thinking. There's no better feeling when you're listening to a speaker and they say something. Um, the example I can think of right now is Bobby Stroop. He, he, he said something to the lines of, Sometimes we only give them one rep because then that's all you get in the game. Like you get one rep and I'm like, you know what? That makes so much sense. Like I've, I've wanted to like do that before, but I'm afraid to, to program or schedule or try on myself. Like I only get one shot, like shot at this, but then you realize the intensity and the focus, all it changes completely when you have one chance to make a free throw or one chance to do the sprint or one chance to make this throw. 
uh, and there's no do over. And, and that, that simulates that, that game or meat like atmosphere. And that's what you're going for. So there's no better feeling when, uh, when you hear something, it's like, that makes sense to me. I've always kind of wanted to do it that way, but I needed to hear someone else either had success with it or to kind of validate my thoughts and give me more confidence going forward with, yeah. with how I want to approach it. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I think the other two things about, about them that, um, that really made sense to me and it was very much light bulb moments was uh, number one time sprints. I mean, I finally, I finally bit the bullet and came out of pocket and, and bought a free lap system and that changes everything. I mean, it, it just, you know, now you're not guessing now when, you know, you're, you can go in with more of a, a rifle than a shotgun in your training. And the num the numbers don't lie. I mean, last summer before I got it, I'm out in my front yard and we're doing time flies and I have a stopwatch. And the first thing I'm selling, selling, telling the kids, and they know this is that remember when somebody's holding a stopwatch in, in the state of North Carolina, we add 0.24 to any hand-timed uh, event to right. account for it, to account for the the human reaction time and that kind of stuff. So when I'm timing a 115 fly for a young lady or young man, whatever, there's variance in that, whether they were faster, whether they were slower. So it it really is more of a guess, and it's definitely more inaccurate. But having that free lap and they roll through there, and all of a sudden you get a time, you're like. I am a lot more confident in that time than me pressing, pressing a stopwatch button twice to start and stop. Um, please go ahead. I see you're going. I think it takes a coach to go through that, trying to time forties with a hand time. And it's like, Oh, I, I started that one late. I started, you know, I, I clicked that one late and just see how much variance you have as a coach to yeah. realize there's gotta be a better way to do this. And I think with electronic timing and, and, the it's you know it's not it's you know it's the free lap it's like around 500 600 dollars whatever it might be but it is something that a coach can invest in and make your life so much easier instead of always guessing uh you know i think this kid got faster because my my yeah. time might you know was it me that got fat or like did i click the right. button faster this time or did the kid actually run faster that second guessing goes away when you invest in something that that helps you like the free lap the difference in intensity is, is noticeable without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and what's the old, I heard this old joke a few years ago that, you know, a kid comes to you, dad's talking to you. I want to get his 40 down. I said, Oh, I can certainly do that. Tell you what I'll do is I'll let him go. I'll go by his reaction. So I'll start on his first step instead. Of, so you eliminate me saying go in his reaction time. I'll, I'll hand time it and, and I'll get you down about four tenths in your 40 just by that. <laughs> without without any training i can improve your, your 40 by you know three or four tenths right there there um, you go and but it's such a simple idea that that timing sprints and i don't know why it's taking you know and maybe a lot of good coaches knew about this a long time ago but why it's it, it didn't become popularized till till now because if you think of anything else that you do like with the the common uh, analogy is 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 grades in school Mm -hmm. where you know the classes where it's pass fail or you don't get a grade kids aren't going to try like you know they're putting in as least amount of effort because it doesn't matter yeah and when you are telling a kid that like, you need to run fast it's really hard to tell if they're going 90 or 92 percent or 95 percent or they're actually giving exactly. you their full 100 but when you have an objective a simple objective measurement it's so much easier to to motivate them but also to get 
uh, reliable data and, and see if they are improving. Yeah, totally agree. The, the second thing that to mention about uh, Chris Corfus especially is when I, I stumbled upon him, uh, this is not 20, summer of 2019, and I always take it upon myself each summer when I have a little bit more time is to, I want to really study a lot. And I want to try to reach out to somebody who I, I, I've never heard of, or maybe I've heard very little of. And, and he came across my, my tablet for whatever reason. And I read the first article and I was just absolutely hooked because for years and years and years, you know, we've always heard, or I always heard that, you know, power is the name of the game and it's from, you know, belly to mid thigh, get as strong as you can through that core region or whatever it meant. And I always thought to myself, I wonder why we don't focus on the feet so much. Is that, am I, am I off there? Is it just, you know, that, that when you're heavy squatting, when you're power cleaning, that you're adequately developing your feet. And I mean, you could argue yes or no, but I just know that once I read a couple articles, especially, and then I bought a presentation and another one and another one, another one. And, and, and I got into personally doing the isometrics because I'm never going to have my kids do something that I have not experimented with. But I just felt the change in me just yeah. by just by strengthening my feet. And it, it it has just made a huge difference. And then to preface that a little bit, you know, Franz Bosch talks about it. But Gary Winkler is, is one of my heroes. Gary was um, he was at Oregon State and Florida State. And then more recently, he's retired now, but more recently, he was with the University of Illinois, coached a world champion, Perdita Felician in the hurdles. And he is just an amazing, amazing man. But he, he talked a lot about the foot interacting with the ground. And the more that he coaches, he is looking at feet as they hit the track. And that, I tell the kids that all the time. I said, you know, when I'm watching you run, a lot of times I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at your feet. And if you can correct a lot of things that are happening with the foot interacting with the ground, a lot of other things are solved. And, and I have seen that. And it's just been a made a remarkable difference in my program. We see that a lot in physical therapy where it's like a top bottom approach or a bottom up or a top down approach or a bottom up approach where you can start at the, the pelvis and the hips and work your way down, or you can start at the feet and work your way up when you have a lower extremity injury or, or rehab from surgery. And, and it seems like with sprinting, it should be no different, but you should be able to do both where, you know, if they're feeling great, but something's off, you should be able to go up the chain and try to figure out what's going on. And if they're, their core and, and pelvis and, and, and torso look great. And there's not running right, or they're, they're injured or things like that. You should be able to, to work your way down and try to kind of reverse engineer the problem from there. So I like, I like how that you've taken that approach because I think too often we get stuck in, well, this is the way I've always done it. Right. And this has always worked for me. And you know, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a pelvis issue. It's gotta be a pelvis issue. It's like, well, maybe it's a foot issue. And maybe right. if you always think it's a foot issue, maybe it's pelvis issue and vice versa. So I like that, that, uh, that ability to adapt. And I think that benefits the kids the most because you are modeling that behavior that you want them. You want them to be adaptable. Well, you need to be adaptable in your coaching and teaching and training as well. Yeah. And I think the, the, the four foot rocker or shin drop, knee drop, the bent knee prime times and that kind of focus it's, it's really been a game changer. And I've had a kid 
bless his heart. He's at a university right now, but you know, I say bless his heart because he lost his senior season last year, like a lot of kids did. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was really heartbreaking, but he went on to, he's running in, in college and he had the, he would send me videos this past fall because he was not allowed to be coached. The coaches would kind of stand at the fence and do the best they can. And I was learning all this stuff with, you know, following Corfus and trying to understand it and then applying it with the kids I was able to train this fall. And I was just seeing such positive differences. I was like, I can hardly wait to get you home. And he ended up coming home the week after Thanksgiving. And he was a 22-8 in his junior year in high school. So a very respectable, solid sprinter. Right. Um, didn't have the free lap, because so I can't tell you what his fly time was. But I'm, I'm guessing last summer, it was probably 102, 103. Um, and then we worked a lot and I, 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 we talked a lot about the four foot rocker and shin drop and being able to hit these positions, duck walking, all the stuff that I learned from Corpus. And by the time he left to go back to school, he was down at point 98. And then he, I got a text from him two weeks ago saying he ran a point 95 and got a text from him two nights ago that said he ran a 288 fly 30. And the cool thing was, is that um, his coach was watching from the from the fence and I get a, I get an email and it says, JC is fast. <laughs> so the college coach was like, uh, I'd really like to talk to you about what you did this past six weeks. And it, it was just it was a fun conversation. And it was it was all about getting a kid better. And it was and a lot of that is stuff I've learned in the last six months to to year. Absolutely. And I think that's it's so valuable that you can have input without trying to take over his entire college coach, you know, training schedule or cycle or periodization. You're just trying to help the kid get faster and your little tweaks can really help. And you're you're being an asset instead of being a conflict with his new you know, coaching staff or his, his new training program, you're just trying to help them kind of move like move with the current a little bit faster. And I think there's too much of, Oh, like you're not, you're not his coach anymore. Like, please stay away. Or he's my athlete now. And I think we kind of get in those battlegrounds a little bit too much instead of just, just trying to help the, the kid be better. Yeah. I was impressed with that, but I, I just, for the record, I made sure that he checked in with his coach and said, I said, look, I'm your high school coach. I'm happy to help you, but you are technically not mine anymore. So you do what your college coach tells you to do. But uh, thankfully, he, you know, he said, yeah, I've checked with him and he's good to go. So that's out there. Right. Everyone, yeah, everyone's <laughs> on the same page. And that's yeah. the thing. It's just let's all get on the same page and then we can grow instead of assuming he's OK with this or she's OK with that or he got permission. Let's like just check in with each other and be better. Yeah. I remember the first uh uh, Tony Holler article I read. It was on Mike Boyle's site, and it's he it was like ten things every coach should know, or ten things yeah, about yeah. the commandments, whatever that article. It's 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 pretty popular, but there was one of them that was along the lines of uh, the weight room doesn't make you faster. And I was like, I've never heard this. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm really interested because this is nothing like I've heard before. And and you come to today, and you know, hundreds of articles later between everyone in that community and and presentations and all that, I've started to realize that, uh, you know, if you want to get faster, like sprinting at max speed has to be a part of that. But going back to the weight room, do you have the weight room a part of your track program at all? And if so, what, to what capacity? 
It's really evolved over the years. Sure. Uh, I used to, my first few years at, at East, which was around 2000, 2009, it, I, I was very typical. We would go out, we would warm up on the track. We would, um, we'd start practice around four and we'd, we'd get all our, our sprinting, accelerating, whatever it may be done. And at about five, tiny, tiny bit after we'd go into the weight room and, you know, it was cleans and snatches and squats and just your, you know, your basic, basic stuff. Uh, we have a pretty small weight room at East Chapel Hill High and certain times of the year, more teams are in there and, uh, you know, football would, would bring a lot of kids in there. So it just became less and less accessible for us. And, and so I ended up doing little fundraisers or just asking the community, you know, can you donate dumbbells? Can you donate? What can you do? What you, and, and, and it was amazing what we were able to piece together and, so I do everything out at the track now. So I, I don't go into the weight room just because I'll be honest with you, I don't deal with the unknown really well. So when, when I take whatever 20, 30 kids, I want to know that everything's going to be as I wanted it to be when I right. set it up in the weight room. And if I go in there and instead of having this many racks or this much equipment, we have a third, that just doesn't work well for me. I'd rather, I'd rather know. So we've started doing everything at the track. We have dumbbells out there and I have, I have pared down my weightlifting significantly. I just have certain, uh, I guess you could call them not go-to lifts necessarily, but I try to think Vern Gambetta was very inspirational for me and he made it simple. And he always just said, you know, if you, if you push, you pull and you do some leg work, you're going to at least have some balance within your training. Um, I expand a little bit upon that, but I, I always stay within that framework and it, it just makes sense to me. So, you know, we may get some kind of press in, we're going to, we're going to do some kind of pull, usually it's some kind of pull up or something like that. Cause I don't have a, I don't have heavy, heavy dumbbells out there. They're anywhere from tens to 35s to 40s, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we'll, we'll do some kind of usually single leg exercise. I, I, it's not that I don't believe in deadlifting or squatting or something like that, but I just, I don't have that out there. And with the little time that I have, I need to find exercises that I think have a bigger bang for the buck. And, and to me, that's, that's single leg exercises. And I think with developing athletes and I think with, with the kids that I see these days that are sitting too much or, or aren't as generally active over a wide variety of sports or just a wide variety of activities, they're coming to us with, with less experience from a movement standpoint. And I, sure. I'm, I'm just very apprehensive about loading them into a pattern and trying to hit a number on a squat or a deadlift or a bench or whatever it is. I just, I just, I choose to go a different path. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just choose to go a different path. Right. And at the end of the day, you got to find what is optimal for you and what you can work with in the constraints of what you have. And if, that means a little less time in the weight room or a little less time doing weights. So you can be hundred percent when you are on the track doing sprints or plyos or acceleration work or whatever, then that that's what works best for your program. And in an ideal world, we would have all the equipment, all the time, all the, you know, everything, but we all have constraints to, to some degree, whether it's weather, you know, financial, whether it's space, whether it's, you know, time, you know, things like that. And uh, I really like talking to coaches about it because 
everyone just has a little different kind of twist on it. And it seems like you found pretty good balance between, you know, teaching these kids some, some new movement patterns, but also keeping it uh, relevant to the training style that you want to implement as a successful track coach. Yeah. I, I've, I've been very lucky with that. The, you know, the other, the other two, two, uh, two things that come to mind. One is, is I'm at a East Chapel Hill or just the Chapel Hill community. It's, it's highly, highly academically challenging. And it's, it's really nothing for our high school juniors to be taking five AP classes. And I, I learned this the hard way that I had a very talented young lady my first year coaching there. And she was running about, you know, she was a, a 60 second 400 meter kid, which is, which is good to qualify at the 4A level. It's, it's not going to win you a, um, a place in the state championship or anything, but she, she was very talented and she was just not getting, she was not getting better by the time May rolled around. And I was thinking, you know, she should be, you know, 57, 58 or something, or she should be just doing better. I'm not going to put a number. And she wasn't. And then I asked the smart question, how much, how much sleep are you averaging? And she said, well, I'm usually up till two o'clock in the morning, every night studying. I have five AP classes. So she was sleeping from two until seven. And I'm like, holy moly, you know, I didn't even take that into account. So I'm, I'm having her do all the, the workouts that everybody else is doing. And I'm not asking the question of how much sleep are the kids getting? You know, are they recovering, doing any of that stuff? And that's just ridiculously important. And so when it comes to lifting, I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, when you're training, of course, everybody knows this. It's you don't get stronger faster when you're training. You you get faster, stronger, more powerful in the recovery sure. from it. And if and if you're not eating well, if you're not hydrating, if you're not sleeping, then you know a lot of it's going to be compromised. So I just found that you have to prioritize what's most important. And and I'm a track coach. I'm not a weightlifting coach. Do I think resistance training? benefits a sprinter or a distance runner. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But you just have to strike a balance somehow. And that's, that to me is the art of coaching as opposed to the science of coaching. How do you also balance on making an exception for her while holding the rest of the team to a certain standard? How have you been able to, to manage that? Well, I think it's, it, it's, it's about developing relationships. And, and sure. I, I go by, one of your questions to me, I think, was how have I grown as a coach or has becoming a parent, I think, is what you said, mm -hmm. had an effect on you being a coach. And oh, my good. I mean, I, I can't believe the teacher I was prior to having my first child to, to where I am now. And just and it's the simple it's a simple thought of. If, if this were my child, how would I want him or her to be coached? And that's right. the coach I try to be. And so everybody's different. Everybody comes from a different background. So my thought process at track and field practice is I want to be as positive as possible. If I'm always negative, that's a turnoff. If, if I am positive, I'm very upbeat. I'm setting the tone for, for the, the whole program. If something does go wrong where I need to kind of, you know, haul them up a little bit, that works a whole lot more effectively than right. somebody who's just a grouch all the time. Then it comes, right. uh, he's just grouching about something else. But <laughs> you know, one of the first things I try to do, and it, it sounds simple, but I wanna learn everybody's name. I mean, when you have a program of 80 kids and you coach 25 or 30 of them or however many it is, and you know how track and field practice, I try to get everybody together, but 
it's very difficult to learn. I'll be honest with you, every distance runner's name. It's very, very difficult when you're just not with them very much. Right. And, and so that to me is most important. I want to do things where we all get to know each other better so I can understand you. So, but if everybody feels like they can be heard, they can be listened to that their own needs can be addressed or talked about, then the anxiety of, oh, he's making an exception for that kid. I think it decreases. I really, I really do. I really do. There's few feelings better in, in high school sports when, uh, like I played football, I played a little basketball and I ran track when a, a non-position coach gave you a compliment, like they knew your name, they gave you a compliment, like, oh, nice run, Tom, or, hey, like I saw you in the four by two, Tom, like nice job today. And it was like the distance coach or in football, it was like the defensive back coach. And it just made you feel important and valued and someone that didn't have to necessarily, you know, invest and care in you as much as like a position coach would took that time too. So I think that is great that the simple, the simplest thing is just giving a you know, kid a compliment or knowing their name or, yeah. or just knowing one thing about, you know, do they, do they, what's their dog's name or what TV show do they like or what, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and that, that makes a big difference in terms of the kids commitment to the program, their motivation, their excitement and, and, and what they value. So I think you're, you're, you're definitely on track with all that stuff. And I think kids, I think kids really need that these days because I think there's too much uh, of feeling like a number, whether that's because of social media or the internet or how kids are developing. But I think it's really easy to get lost in the masses. And when a coach calls your name and, and hopefully in a positive way, it feels really good. And they, we all have a desire to be loved and noticed. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And we're at least in our culture here in Chapel Hill, like I mentioned, it's very highly competitive academically. And you have kids that are competing to get into you know, Carolina, Carnegie Mellon, Harvard, Yale. I mean, so, and so it, it sometimes it breeds very much of a, I need to get mine kind of attitude. Right. And, and, I, and I, I think it's very important to share that people are going to bat for you. People are trying to make you the best person you can be. And your goal, yeah, your goal is to do the best you can with what you're being given. But it's also very important to give back. And I think a lot of people don't know how to do that or they, they think they might. And by giving them very, very concrete ideas that you got to give back. And it's as simple as when, when we, we talk about jumpers and, and the different, so many different sections of, of track and field that you can, you know, the throwers tend to be a group that hangs together and the, the sprinters and the distance runners and the pole vaulters. And it's real easy to be on your own little island but the one thing I point out is how many of you love it? How many of you love it when, when your teammates are cheering for you and they're just like, oh yeah, that's one of the greatest feelings. Okay. Well, how many of you are doing that for your teammates? And so it, it's kind of a get out of your own little world and, and, and be there for everybody else as well. That's such good advice. And it, it's really, it's an effort thing. And can you take time to go over to, to the pole vault area? Can you take time to go over to the jumper area? Can you take time to go watch someone, you know, throw the shot or disc? It takes a little effort. It's probably the last thing you want to do during a meet if you're an athlete because you're just worrying about yourself. Um, but it means all, you know, all the, all the, in the world where you PR and your teammates are there, you know, cheering you on or you have a bad meet and they're there to pick you up. And because I think track and field, it gets, it can get really 
very very silo even within the individual it's you know this is my event this is this is my meet um and it's hard to always breed that that idea of, of teamwork uh, unlike other team sports where like a ball is shared or you know pass the puck right. to each other or things like that how what else do you do to help kind of foster